Hey everybody, welcome. <clears throat> it's Wednesday night, April, was it, April 14th? What a great night. God, the weather is so good here in Sacramento. It's a shame that I had a toothache today and couldn't get out and fiddle around in my yard. I love fiddling around in my yard. Anyway, welcome to tonight's show. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm your host. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team uh, based out of Sacramento, but we have teams located up and down the state of California. Oregon, Washington, and some people in Hawaii, which is kind of cool. But anyway, uh, you can find us at www.californiahaunts.org if you get out, if you go online. Anyway, um, welcome, and we have an old friend on tonight, Larry Jorgensen. Larry Jorgensen has written a great book about the Coca-Cola Bottling Company. And last time we had him on, we talked about some of the historical stuff in there. But Larry told me he had some stuff he wanted to tell us and discuss some, some different stuff. So we decided to bring him back on so we can do that. So without further ado, and you'll see, I'll do that in a second. You'll see me make an adjustment on my screen, you know, since the last time I was on, you know, I've, I've been working on this with this new computer and I had to buy a separate webcam for it. And the webcam is wide angle. So every time I move the computer around, I have to readjust. And as you can see, you can, for a change, you can see the mic and the, uh, Mic bar coming up, and that's because the wide angle lens. So as soon as Larry comes in, we're double. I'm going to make another adjustment on it, so don't get seasick or anything on me. Anyway, without further ado, let's bring in our good friend Larry. Hey, good evening. Glad good evening. To be with you. How and are you? We're doing fine. We're um, over way over here in Louisiana, where weather has been a bit of a challenge lately, but uh, we've got our uh, Coca-Cola to get us through. So we're we're ready to rock and roll. Fantastic. Now, the last time we were on, we talked about almost everything under the sun having to do with Coca-Cola. <clears throat> but you had told me that you had other stuff to tell me. So I'm going to let you handle the show and tell tell me what you didn't tell me last time. Well, we've, we've put out a second book called Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. And uh, one of the things that uh, we start out with is, you know, the question... Why is the Coca-Cola bottle green? Yeah, you know, it has that slight green tint to it. Well, mm -hmm. it's an interesting story. It seems that uh, when the people who made the bottle, and that was the Root Bottle Company in Terre Haute, Indiana, they were using a sand to make the glass from a quarry that they owned about 50 miles away. As it turned out, that sand had some copper and some other minerals in it. And when the glass was made, it had that slight green tint to it. Uh, Coca-Cola was just 
amazed. They thought, this is wonderful. They hadn't figured out a little green tint. And uh, they said, That's, we must have that. Anytime there's a Coca-Cola bottle made, we must have that green tint in it. So as it evolved and other glass companies became eligible to make the Coca-Cola bottle, um, Coca-Cola told them, um, if you don't have those minerals in the sand you use, you must add them because we sure like that green. And they called it Georgia Green. I wonder why. So that's that's one interesting story that uh, uh, a lot of people probably never even stopped to think about. Why is that bottle got that green tint to it? And that, I never that, thought about that. I just thought that bottle, you know, that, that they could make bottles of different tints. Yeah, if it, they wanted to. It, it was interesting, and of course, we talked about that before. That there was a big competition, you know, to to um, have the bottles and who, what company was going to make them, and so forth. Um, you know, the Coca-Cola bottles uh, are collectors' items now. The the old ones, you know, they have the the name of the town on the bottom where the Coca-Cola was bottled. I don't know if I told you the first time, but there was a bottle that sold at auction in California about a year and a half ago for $150,000. Wow. And the reason for that, you know, the bottle was first made in 1905, the prototype, the one that they entered in competition. They made six of them. Uh, they won the competition. And Coca-Cola Company said, we want one of the prototype bottles for the archives, and the rest of them should be destroyed. Well, on the bottle was the date 1905. The actual use of the bottle didn't happen until 1906. Or it so happened, even though there was supposed to be five destroyed, one of them escaped. And that's the one that ended up at the auction in California about a year and a half ago. And it is so rare. And it says 1905 on it. There's only two Coca-Cola bottles in existence. that say 1905, one of them at the archives in Atlanta. The other one, somebody bought out in California for $150,000. Wow. Glad to have that kind of money that you just spend on a Coke bottle is amazing. Yeah, it had no Coke in it either, you know, yeah. <laughs> empty. That, that's not fun, but it shows you Coca-Cola is so unique in, in being a collectible item. I mean, you could go to any memorabilia store, junk store, flea market, you're going to see Coca-Cola hanging on the wall. And it's going to be a collector's piece. It's amazing the prices they get for some of these because maybe there was only six or seven of them made, whatever it happens to be. Coca-Cola's name is on so many things. Um, you know, in, in our second book, and somewhat in the first book, we talk about the outdoor signs, mm -hmm. the, the Coca-Cola murals on the sides of buildings and so forth. And people in communities will raise money uh, to to preserve and to restore these old Coca-Cola murals. They're advertising, but they are such a part of that town's history that they want to preserve it. You know, it's that old brings back a memory thing. Uh, mm -hmm. 
there aren't many businesses, there aren't many products where people spend money to save their advertising. You know, that reminds me of, I'm thinking about that TV show where, where, where the, well, I don't know if they go anymore, but the guys that go from place to place into the barns looking for stuff like that to collect. Yeah, the pickers. And, and they have visited some of the places that we've written about in the book. Um, and they know, they know the values of these things and they will buy them, haul them back to their little store in Iowa, which is, they actually have two stores now, Iowa and Nashville, I believe. Right. And, and they'll mark them up and, and they'll get a good price for them. In fact, the Coca-Cola Collectors Association, it's a national group, they met uh, in Iowa about three years ago. They have an annual convention. And part of that convention, they went down to the Pickard store and went went through it and saw all the goodies that are there. Um, yeah, it, it's fabulous, the, the, the prices that people pay. And it, it's a memory thing. They see something and they say, I remember that. I remember, you know, it's that old putting peanuts in your Coca-Cola trick, you know. Well, you know, that's, but that's what makes it so cool. It's like, remember those, um, and they still have a few left, those, those 50 steamed restaurants they had for a while. And I mean, that was the fun of going in there because you got to see all the old signs like that, the Coca-Cola sign, the Pepsi signs, you know, and all that stuff. That's what made it cool. Well, and there's a lot of those, especially along Highway 66. You know, that's memorabilia highway anyhow. And there are, there's one in, in Oklahoma, uh, the the gentleman who owns the, the, the soda fountain and restaurant, I think he calls it Pops, and he has outside of his store a huge Coca-Cola replica bottle. It must be 12 feet tall. And people stop because of that memory. Uh, and, and bless his heart, he sells a lot of our books, too. So, But it's it, well, we see it along Highway 66, mm-hmm. the old soda fountains, and... You see the Coca-Cola uh, memorabilia. Um, in the book, we wrote about a soda fountain in uh, Alabama, supposed to be the oldest operating soda fountain in Alabama, and it's decorated all over with Coca-Cola memorabilia. And it's it's an interesting story, and people come from miles and miles to see that soda fountain, to get a soda there, and to enjoy the atmosphere like, like you say, like back right. in the fifties, you know. Right. Does that so? I mean, are, are they getting like, a, a, for instance, like 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 the tap for the Coca Cola? Are are they getting it by the tap, or is this, is it just bottles? Uh, I, you you broke up a little bit. Okay. Repeat the question. Well, like root beer comes in a tap. I know some of the soda fountains you can you can you know flip the thing down like beer and get it. Are they getting the coke? Are they still getting the coke that way, or is it just primarily bottles? Well, the, the bottling, you know, of Coca-Cola actually started by a gentleman in Mississippi who owned a fountain, a soda fountain, and he was getting the syrup, just the syrup from Coca-Cola. That's all they were making was the syrup. And he thought, you know, if I could put this in bottles, I could get, this was in 1895. You know, it wasn't easy to get to his soda fountain. He thought, if I can put this in bottles, I can get it out to the country and people can enjoy it in the country. So that's really bottling of Coca-Cola started in 1895 in Vicksburg, Mississippi. It was about five years later that uh, 
two young entrepreneurs who happened to be lawyers from Chattanooga thought, you know, that's a pretty good idea. Let's go talk to Coca-Cola and see if they'll let us have the rights to bottle. This is five years after the guy in Vicksburg has been doing it. Mm-hmm. They, go, they go to Asa Candler, who owned Coca-Cola at the time, and they said, we want the rights to bottle Coca-Cola. He thought, he said to him, that's a dumb idea. That is really a dumb idea. You, you know, I don't want to, you, you, you might ruin the taste, whatever. Well, they finally talked him into it. And I think just to get rid of them, he sold them the rights to the United States, exclusive rights to bottle Coca-Cola for $1. Wow. Because he didn't think bottling was a good idea. And I guess things changed shortly thereafter. That's why there's the saying that and it's much harder to become a self-made millionaire now than it was back then because it was a lot cheaper back then to get things started. It was, and, and ideas were, you know, just waiting to be discovered, so to speak. You know, And the, the, the two guys in Chattanooga went back to Chattanooga after they had the rights to bottle in the whole United States. Exclusive rights. Mm-hmm. That's between fantastic. The, between the two of them, they had $1,500. Now, how are you going to do this? Right? It's crazy. Part of a little bottling plant. And then the light went on. And they thought, wait a minute. We've got the rights. Franchising. They started cutting up their territories, selling. You want a bottle of Coca-Cola? We'll sell you 50 miles around your city. You can be the bottler. You have to buy the Coca-Cola syrup to use when you bottle. And guess what? Every time you bought that syrup, the guys who sold you the territory got a commission on the sale of the syrup. So you may have bought the territory, but they were still making a little money when you were bottling the Coca-Cola. That's terrific. God, what a great story. And what a great way to make money, you know, without realizing, like we talked about last time, you know, the, the, the McDonald's guy, too. I mean, he did, he did something similar, you know, when he, when he started, because I, I read Ray Kroc's book. You know, and, and how he did it. Fascinating stuff. So tell me, um, what did you focus your book on? Did you focus the Did you focus the new book on on just the, the people that that were buying the memorabilia, or did, does it continue from the last book? It, it's pretty much a continuation. Okay. What happened with the first book? Once people read it, I would get these messages, emails, you know, whatever. I'd run into somebody at a convention or show, and they'd say, "Well, you didn't write about." You know, so I'd make a little note, you know, pretty soon I got a stack of notes of things that, hey, this sounds like some pretty good stories here. So we we proceeded to put together Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. And, you know, the same thing. I've got to quit with this because I think there's no (laughs) end to it. I'm getting the same thing now. People are are sending me notes or sending me pictures. Well, what about this? For example... Just a couple of weeks ago, I received a photo from a lady who, in fact, was a journalist and had read my book and went to stay at a resort in, in uh, North Carolina. Well, it so happened that that resort had a display of Coca-Cola memorabilia. She sent me a picture. I looked into it. That resort at one time was owned by one of the very first Coca-Cola bottlers in North Carolina. 
And that is the history to it. And, and you know, I wish I had another book to put it in, and who knows, I may have. But it's fascinating because the man was known as the king of Coca-Cola in the Dakota and the Carolinas. So um, you never know where the next book will come from. Have you thought about approaching anybody in maybe uh, Hollywood or even, uh, even I guess, at the college even to do a documentary on all this? Well, you know, I've had a couple, um, just recently, a couple people contact me, different companies. And uh, I am looking at a couple of those. Um, and, of course, you get a lot of people that contact you that have ideas and basically they want, you know, they want you to, to pay the bill and maybe it'll be something. Fortunately, I have a very good friend who teaches and um, motion picture production. He's at a university in New Orleans. Uh, he's been a good he's, he's a good consultant for me, and um, we're going to look at it seriously. The, the The problem is, if you've looked at the book, it's a series of small stories. It's not like once upon a time, and then at the last chapter, and they lived happily ever after. Right. It, you know, it's 30 chapters in the first book and 20-some in the second, and each one of them is, a, it would be good for a series, I, I guess. You know, each one of them is a self-contained story. Mm -hmm. and, and each one of them has a, a different reason. You know, I, I was, you know that song, that country song, the, the, there's a phrase in there, uh, I was country when country wasn't cool, I was putting yeah. in my coke. Well, one of the chapters of the second book is about the bottler in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he, back when he got started, thought that I've got to find a way for people to be thirsty to try my drink. He was going to football games high school football games, trying to sell his Coca-Cola, and people wouldn't try it. So he started selling little bags of peanuts. And he found out that for every little bag of peanuts he sold, the person would come back and buy two bottles of Coca-Cola. So, it, And that tradition continued with that bottler in, in Santa Fe just because it was such a neat part of them getting started to introduce Coca-Cola. And, you know, introducing the product was, in fact, a challenge for these new bottlers because, you know, the bottlers in those days, they were bottling good old sarsaparilla and orange soda and lime and all that. Coca-Cola was so different. People were like, I don't want to try that. A lot of the bottlers, they'd get an order for a mixed case of sodas and they'd slip a couple bottles of Coca-Cola in there just put them in and see what would happen. And pretty soon the word got out. People were trying it. And, hey, this is pretty good stuff. <laughs> and they did all kinds of things to get people to try Coca-Cola. Once they tried it, they were hooked. By the way, have you tried the new Coca-Cola uh, coffee? I have not. You know, I have to confess, I'm not a daily Coca-Cola drinker. I, I drink it on occasion. You know, it's been part of my past, but it's not, I'm not a memorabilia thing. Well, they came out with this Coca-Cola coffee. I thought, I have to try that. That, and the secret to it, if you buy some, okay, the secret to it, as far as I'm concerned, open it up and let it get flat. 
Okay. Try, try it a few hours later because the coffee flavor really comes through. The carbonation kind of hides it. This is just my personal opinion. This is not an official message from the Coca-Cola Corporation. It's a it's a good drink. It's even better when it's flat. Is there a kick to it? Because Coke already has a little caffeine in there. Yeah, it's it's Coca-Cola. It's got the Coca-Cola syrup base. Okay. I don't know how they concoct all these things, but it's got <laughs> the coffee flavor as well. You know, in Japan, they're already making uh what we call it, Coca-Cola hard, I guess we would call it. And uh, and it's going over very well. So who knows, that may be headed to our shores. Too, you too. never know. <laughs> when you were writing the second book, I, I envy you because I, I, I've done stories like there's a, there's a little gas station that's out, uh, out by the Rockland area out here that's supposed to be the oldest um, gas stop in, in on the West Coast. And so I, I envy you being able to go to these different places and look at them, you know, to, to look at the memorabilia of Coke and everything, because that gas station, I'm thinking about that, that had all the old style Coke machines in there too. And I thought that was terrific. Yeah, the Coke, the old Coke machines, again, some of them were made in very limited quantities because the, the technology kept improving. So some of the very old, old Coca-Cola vending machines are very, again, very valuable to collectors. Uh, we see them pop up on the internet all the time. And these people are paying, you know, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for an old Coca-Cola machine. You know, again, it defies me to find another company that hasn't just thrown away their vending machines because they're of no value. And here's Coca-Cola collectors that are just crying to get their hands on them. For your new, for for the new book, what what stood out to you the most? What what did what? You know, you're writing the new book. You're out, you know, you're out doing your research. What what stood out the most? Ooh, wow! I I think there's a couple things as far as the collectors. If they're headed to ever to Florida, there's a place in Fort Walton Beach called the Buccaneer Gift Store. Who the guy is obviously one of the biggest collectors of Coca-Cola memorabilia I've ever met. And it's all for sale in his big store. Uh, I found him fascinating because the knowledge he had of Coca-Cola memorabilia. But also over in that direction, I was fascinated by the story of Quincy, Florida, which at one time was known as the, the richest town the rich, the town with the most millionaires. There, I got it. And it, it was millionaires that were made because they invested in Coca-Cola stock way back in the early days. And the and the the whole story uh, revolves around why they invested. There was a very smart banker that got them started. And to this day, there's a lot. Although it's not the most wealthiest town anymore, there's a lot of Coca-Cola wealth in that town. I think um, I found that interesting. I found the, yeah, I found the people that that uh, the fourth, fifth generations of people involved in Coca-Cola bottling, there's still those around. They're not all merged into big corporations. And these families, the stories they tell, the memories, it's like old times. What What they remember is 
the early days and the you know maybe delivering the stuff with with a, a horse and a wagon or whatever and i found that to be fascinating to hear the stories that have been handed down from generation to generation and the pride that they have in providing not only coca-cola in their community but being truly involved in their community i i think that's the other thing i found was that the Coca-Cola is so deeply involved in the communities where they're located. And again, I think it's because of the family involvement. You know, it's their town, it's their business, they want to grow with it. Amazing people. And I found that extremely fascinating. And each one of them has a different story as to how they got started, why they got started, and no, we're not ever going to sell to the big guys, you know, that type of thing. Well, when you say involved in the community, what, what, what type of things do they do? Are, are, they, are they sponsoring little league teams? What, what are they doing? Well, they do, not only the sponsoring of teams, but the uh, they have scholarship programs. You, how many communities you go into and you see maybe the local high school football field has been built by Coca-Cola? Of course, they have their big billboard there to remind people of that. But it, what, what do you need? You know, you got the holiday parade coming up, whatever. You know, how many people can tell you that they remember as a child standing in front of the big glass windows at a Coca-Cola plant in their town watching the bottles go round? Well, usually what happened when the kid's there with his nose pressed to the window, somebody brings him a bottle of Coca-Cola outside, you know. It's that type of, it's just the personal touch that they had in all the communities. And and I'm glad that there's still a lot of the small family bottlers around to, to be able to do that. And it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a feel good is what it is. Are there, um, like, like you, like you talk about the, the small family feel on it. Um, are there a, a good majority of, of these bottling places in, in smaller towns, you know, that they're not in the big, you know, central cities. Well, I think, unfortunately, we're down to about 90 across the country, 90 independent small bottlers. What's happened, you know, it's like everything else in the business, the big get bigger. Um, in my second book, I tell the story about a bottler in, in Tullahoma, Tennessee. Again, a family operation for years and years and years. And we... we, we go through how it started. We have photos of the different plants as it grew. Well, as the book was going to press, they sold to a major bottling operation out of Chicago. And I mean major. We were able to get that into the book. But again, it's a family operation that is now gone. And they, they again, they contributed so much to that community. The big guys from Chicago, yeah, they're going to come in and they're going to buy it. And they're going to keep it. And they'll probably expand it. They've got the money. Mm -hmm. But some of the personal, I'll tell you a good example. You know, Coca-Cola, after they realized that bottling, you know, was, was the way to go, they started buying Coca-Cola Corporation, started buying up bottlers. The little bottlers, they started buying, they formed a corporation called Coca-Cola Refreshments. And, you know, and 
the whole thing was to buy up these bobblers. They don't want the bobblers to make it. They're, they're going to make it. What happened is they realized, you know, it's kind of like the dog chasing the car. What do you do when you catch it? Well, they caught all these bobblers. And all of a sudden, the communities weren't, they weren't able to support the local communities as that local bobbler did. And what has happened in the past 10 to 15 years, Coca-Cola has started getting those, giving, not giving, they're working arrangements to get those territories back into the hands of the independent bottlers again. And there's a lot of that that has taken place in the past 10 years where uh, a company that, I can think of one up in northern uh, Mississippi in Corinth, that uh, Coca-Cola came to and said, we, we want to work a deal where you take over this territory north of here that we acquired and it needs to go back to local ownership. So they realized, again, it's that, like we talked about, it's that local involvement. Corporate mm -hmm. Atlanta couldn't keep up with the local involvement. And they realized, you know, and they, little by little, they divested themselves of Coca-Cola bottling plants. They still own some. Don't get me wrong. Corporate still owns a lot of plants, but they've, they've also divested a lot. It makes sense because when you think about like um, Minute Maid Park, you know, with, with that going on with, with the baseball team, I mean, every time they hit a home run out, the, the little train starts up, you know, and it's got all the oranges in there and blah, 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 blah. And that's all local stuff too, you know, where, where they're trying to reach out to the locals. Yeah, but but who owns Minute Maid? Right, right. Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Coca-Cola, I don't know how they do it. They just, they watch the trends. They are constantly developing new product. I had a bottler tell me, and it's, again, a family bottler, bottler. He said, you know, when our family got into this, we had about four or five different products that we distributed for Coca-Cola. There was the bottled, there was the big bottle, there was the, the six-pack holder. You know, that was in four or five different types. He said, now... He said, we got 150, 200 different products. You know, you got your energy drinks. Uh, they own part of Monster. And then they turn around and they make their own energy drink, too. You know, um, all the, the diet drinks and the flavored drinks. And it just goes. And do you know there's, I don't know if you, you get it where you are, but there's a brand of milk called Fair Life. Okay. That's owned by Coca-Cola. Hmm. All kinds of things. You know, it, it's wow. amazing. They they see the trends, they jump on it, and and they and they do it right. You know, I'll give them credit. They've got they've got the ability and the financial ability to take a product and to develop it right to give it what it needs. Amazing company. Now, based on the uh, input of information you had for the, the new book, how long did it take you to? to from start to finish to write the book because obviously you had to go check some of these places out. Well, the second book went faster because I, okay. I already had leads. I knew where to go. Um, it took a little, about a year and a half on the second book. The first book took well over two years, almost three years to do the first book. Um, and, you know, and people, you, when you go to people now and you say, this is what I'm going to do and look at what I've done. 
they know you're not kidding. You know, yeah, we will help you. And again, so much credit should go to people with historical associations, museums that I've gone to, and they've said, hey, we'll help you. We know where there's some photos. Or That's the one thing you'll find in my book, both books, is a lot of old photos from the early days of Coca-Cola. And those were a challenge to find. Sometimes it was families digging through old albums that would say, oh, I remember Grandpa had this, you know, and they'd dig them out and they'd share them with me. So that, that's part of the credit of the book, too. The, 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 on the along that line now, you know, like you said, you got the photos from the families. The stuff that you dug up from archives, did you have to get special permission to use them? Um, usually all you have to do is credit. Now, I, I will, I would, and in many times I did, I would offer reimbursement, you know, for their time and effort. Or I'd make, if it was a history museum, they're always looking for donations. Sure. Donation, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because you just appreciate the work they've done and the fact that they're there to provide this for you. You know, they would dig out old newspaper articles that maybe I'd be looking for a date of when did such and such happened with this plant. Mm -hmm. And they'd find it in their archives and they'd get it to me. That's, you can't do history without that kind of help. This is absolutely fascinating. And I'm really proud of you for, for writing these two books because it does bring, you know, that, that, that history alive because people don't realize the background behind it. Well, you know, the, the, the thing that I've, I started out doing this just as a, a, a thing. I was going to do a little travel feature about two Coca-Cola museums. And I, I really got into it. And once I got into it, I had so many Coca-Cola bottlers tell me every book that's written until now has been about Coca-Cola corporate. If it's not about Atlanta, they don't write it. Right. I believe I'm the first person to have written a book that is focused on the bottlers. I deliberately tried to avoid Atlanta, you know, Occasionally, I would work with the archives in Atlanta, but I tried very hard to make this a thing that is strictly about the bottlers. And, and I'll tell you, I, I firmly believe, I said this in my first book, if it wasn't for the bottlers, there wouldn't have been the growth of Coca-Cola that happened. How would you like to have a product where people pay money to you to go out and sell your product, you know, and they're all independent businessmen that are trying to make a living. And at the same time, they're promoting your product. They're making you successful at the same time. It, without a doubt, the independent bottlers who believed that there was a worthwhile product there were very influential in creating Coca-Cola. I call it the Coca-Cola empire. They helped create it. That's really cool. That's really cool. What did you find to be the most intriguing thing about about the research that, that, that you did? The most intriguing thing? Yeah. yeah that, that, that's kind of a, a, a tough one. I mean, it was all interesting. And, and I, I guess to me, the, if you want to use the term intriguing, it was sometimes you'd come up with a story that you hadn't been looking for. And there were, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, maybe you went to a, a bottler or a community where you thought 
such and such happened. All right, I'll give you a good example. This was, a, if you use your term, intriguing. In the second book, I did a story about, a, uh, again, it's one of these outdoor murals that was, re, that was created on the side of a building. The mural, in fact, represents a painting that a Coca-Cola artist, an outdoor mural artist, did. Well, this artist later became an internationally famous wildlife artist. He's a, he was from Minnesota. He's died three, four years ago. Very famous wildlife artist. But he got his start painting murals on the sides of buildings and painting Coca-Cola on the sides of trucks. And, you know, and he got so good at it that he could paint the Coca-Cola logo upside down and backwards. Now, what is even more intriguing, and I, I bet there's, in fact, I don't think the people of the archives totally know this story. When he was starting out, he was hired to paint the Coca-Cola Coca sign on a on a outdoor baseball field wall. You know how they put those on the back wall. Right. And the local bond, this was in Tifton, Georgia. He went from Minnesota to Tifton, Georgia to paint the sign. He was talking to the bottler there, and, and, and the, he said, the bottler said what he wanted. And the guy, this, this painter said, well, I can do that. He said, you know, I can make the Coca-Cola logo. You know the logo. Everybody knows the logo. He said, I can make the logo better. He said, it needs a little more depth and, and whatever else it needed. He knew. He painted it so much, and he went out and, he, and the, the bottler said, go ahead, do what you want to do. And he painted that on that baseball outfield wall. The bottler was so impressed with it that he called Atlanta, the corporate, and he said, would you come look at this? And so Atlanta sends a couple of their shirt and tie guys up, you know, and they look at it. They go back to Atlanta, and a few days later, they show up again in Tifton, Georgia, with a contract and a check. And they said to the side painter, can we use this? Will you give us exclusive rights? And they wrote him out a big check. Now, it wasn't a major change, but it was enough of a change in that logo that they liked it. It added a little depth, a little sparkle, I guess you could say, to it. And that... I, most people say the Coca-Cola logo has been like that forever. No, it was changed slightly on a ballpark wall in Tifton, Georgia. And to me, it was intriguing as to why it happened. Now, the, the artist, we go back to the mural in Minnesota, he painted, it. could call it a self-portrait. The painting that he painted shows him First of all, as a as a young man, painting a mural on the side of a general a country store, it also shows a youngster, a younger age, sitting there, which is him, watching the sign being painted, and then it shows an older man sitting on the front steps of the same store, whittling, carving a duck or something, and the artist said this represents the three stages of my life when he painted it. 
the painting became very famous, another artist, basically a sign painting artist, a mural artist in Minnesota saw it, saw the painting and said, I want to recreate that as a mural. And he did it. It's in Hutchison, Minnesota on the side of a um, Ace Hardware store. And it's beautiful. It is just beautiful. And we write about it. So yeah, that was very intriguing to me. How the man started out painting the logo in signs, on stores, on trucks. He could do it. He would go to a like a Ducks Unlimited banquet or something, you know, and he'd take the tablecloth and he'd paint the logo upside down and backwards and give it to him and they'd auction it off. You know, the man was amazing. Um, and we write about it in the second book. It's, it's, it's just, it, yeah, that was intriguing. And, and the young man who, who admired him and did the, the full-size mural in uh, Hutchinson, Minnesota, um, is quite an artist himself. And uh, we've stayed in touch since. And again, the book has brought me so many acquaintances, so many friends. You know, it's just, it's been a great experience. I bet it has. That would be, to me, that would be so fun to go out and do that, you know, to talk and meet with these people and, and talk, like you say, find out the old stories, find out the new stories of what people are doing, you know, you know, as far as the product goes. What, what do you think is, is the mass appeal for Coke? What is the what? Mass appeal for it. Mass appeal. Wow. That's a, that is a good one. I, I think I, I've got friends that they can't live without their Coke in the morning. Uh, some of it, I think, is just pure habit. Uh, some of it, but it's habit for a good taste. But look at the disaster that happened. Do you remember the when they came out with new Coca-Cola? Oh, yeah. you know why that happened? That happened. Boy, it didn't last long when, once they came out with what they thought was a great product. You remember the, the old Pepsi challenge? The, they had this thing you'd sample on two little containers and what's the best one? And Pepsi kept winning that thing. You know, people would take a sip of this one and a sip of that one. Which one do you like best? I like this one. Ah, it's Pepsi. Well, Coca-Cola was coming unglued over that. And finally they thought, ah, Pepsi is sweeter. That's it. We got to create a new Coca-Cola. So they created this new Coca-Cola. They made it sweeter, and people didn't want it. There were, <laughs> I remember a, a, a bottler telling me that one of his salesmen who was in the grocery store, some little old lady with an umbrella threatened him that if he didn't bring back her Coca-Cola, he was going to get it. You know, <laughs> People, so, you know, what, what is the addiction? Part of it is a flavor you become, you like, you know? Don't mess with it. Don't mess with my Coca-Cola. Um, and I think part of it, too, is you look at the logo, you remember an event you were at, you had Coca-Cola. You know, it's kind of like the old beer collector's thing, you know? It's a memory thing. Golly, that was, let's relive that memory. Give me a Coke, you know? Um, you know, down here, I'm in the South, and and down here in the south, if uh, if you if you go to a, a, a restaurant, a little convenience store, and you say, "I want a Coke," 
then the next thing they're going to ask you is what flavor? Do you want an orange? Or <laughs> Everything is considered a Coke down here. You know, the name. You don't, you don't ask for a soda or a beverage. You ask for a Coke, you know. So it's, a, it, it's pretty interesting. You know, in fact, the name Coke. You know, Coca-Cola, that was another example of Coca-Cola not wanting to go with the flow. You know, for years it was Coca-Cola. People start going to the grocery store, going to the soda fountain. Give me a Coke. Coca-Cola didn't like that. This is Coca-Cola. And they tried to discourage the use of that. They finally gave up. And you may have seen, they only used it for about 30 years. The, the little caricature, kind of an elf-looking guy, they called the Sprite Boy. And he, he had, sometimes he'd have a, a, a bottle cap on his head. Sometimes he'd have a soda jerk cap on his head. He was created to support the promotion of Coke. Coca-Cola gave up on trying to fight it. They said, let's call it Coke and Sprite Boy will promote Coke. So anytime you see an old ad, an old mural on a wall with the Sprite Boy in it, Chances are it says something about Coke, not Coca-Cola. You know, I mean, look at Coca-Cola. You talk about their artists. They kidnapped Santa Claus. <laughs> That's right. The Santa Claus that we know today, the image of Santa, was created by the Coca-Cola artist. I was thinking about that, yeah. You know, what was it, two or three Christmases ago? If you went to the post office and you bought Christmas stamps, there were four of them, four different Santas. Each one of them was a Santa that had been created by the Coca-Cola artist back in the 30s, you know. Um, so they kidnapped, they kidnapped Santa. They also saved Charlie Brown. You know, what is Coca-Cola? The old Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, they couldn't find a sponsor for that. They weren't going to have it. You know, Coca-Cola came to bat and said, we believe that's a great, that's a great story. Let's do you know, Charlie Brown's Christmas. And from that day on, Coca-Cola and Charlie Brown's Christmas exists. I'll bet in your town at Christmas, wherever you may live, whoever's listening to watching, <laughs> probably at Christmas time, there's these big semis that come in and they're all decorated and they have lights. They've been doing that since the 1990s. And that all started out, an advertising agency created a commercial for Coca-Cola, a TV commercial that showed trucks coming into town. Okay? And they weren't even, it wasn't even real trucks. But the commercial went over so well that Coca-Cola said, let's do that. And you, you know, I, I did an interview with a, a radio station in England not too long ago. And one of the things he asked me about was the Coca-Cola trucks. You know, they're, at Christmas, they're all over England. We love them. <laughs> so it's, again, they start these traditions and people just get with it. You know, it, it's amazing. Well, I was thinking about the Santa Claus thing because I remember uh, in the behind the scenes uh stuff from the movie the santa claus with with, with tim the tool man they had talked about how when they went to look for santa claus's look they went back to the coca-cola santa claus right and 
Yeah, they wanted to find out, find what pe people just related to it. They, they said, yeah, that's Santa. That's what he looks like. You know? And Santa has taken that, and they've also taken the, the polar bears. Yes. Christmas, the polar bears, you know, and they're doing all sorts of wonderful things. And, and you know, that we talked about the Sprite Boy, two different Christmases, the artist actually put the Sprite Boy with Santa. Um, one Christmas, as I recall, it was um, Santa was uh, on the roof with his sleigh, and the Sprite Boy was giving him a Coke to be refreshed before they took off again, you know. So they kind of blended them together for a while too. But, you know, a good, I think a good story about the murals, and this is what I found in the second book. In Albion, Michigan, there is, the community has raised a lot of money, I mean a lot of money, to restore a huge, Coca-Cola mural on the side of a building. The interesting thing is the building hangs over the Kalamazoo River. You know, it's the street is there, the, the building fronts on the street, but then it hangs over the river. So here's this big mural that's on a building that's hanging over the river. What a project to restore that. But the, an interesting thing, and I guess maybe I get uh, fascinated by little tidbits, but before it was um, a Coca-Cola mural on there, it was a piano store. And a flood came and flooded the store and actually some of the pianos went flowing down the Kalamazoo River. Well, I think one of the classic comments that came out of that, and it's in the book, they say a fisherman was, was on the river and a piano went floating by, and he said, well, you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. <laughs> I don't know, for some reason, that caught my attention. That is funny. That's really funny. I have a question in the chat room. Is um, a Sprite a Coca-Cola product? Yes. Okay. Okay. That's a little Sprite and have, Yeah, and they, they have others, too. Other, you know, it's amazing the, the products that they have. But well, I'll tell you what, you go in the grocery store, you're going to have about an aisle of Coca-Cola stuff and then the other stuff too, you know. it's a, they're, they're masters of getting the product out there. They support the retailer. You know, they don't just come in and dump the product. They've got people in there constantly. Here's our new product. Here's what you need. You know, making displays, just promotions, selling. That's that's part of the game, selling the product. You know, I always look at selling a product is not the sale of that product, mm -hmm. but the sale of that consumer. The product, you may have made a dollar when you sold the product, but what is the lifetime value if the customer likes that product and buys it? That's what, there's where you made the sale. You've sold a customer. And that's Coca-Cola's masters at selling customers. They bring them into the store and they make them happy. Now, uh, talking to the different people that, that ran the independent bottling companies, would, would you say that, 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 that the main mood with it all was that the reason why it sold so well was that they, actually, they really cared about the product? 
Absolutely. They, they invested, a lot of them invested their last dime that they could find. So they cared about it because they wanted to get their money back. But they found out as they were doing it that people liked what they were doing. You know, so it was sort of, I like it, and now my friends like it, and they're buying from me. So it was that, yeah, they, there's a, 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 a gentleman, he's a fourth or fifth generation, a little Coca-Cola pound, it's not so little anymore because they've gotten some new territory. They're up in Corinth, Mississippi. He has recently wrote a little book, and it's simply a book of his memories of the bottling operation, the, the community, and they have a little museum up there. And it's a great little book. It's not the kind of thing, you know, if you read it, it's, well, so what? But it's yeah. it's his memories of, it shows the, the, the real person, the, the Coca-Cola bottler, the real bottler, his, his loyalty to his employees, and he didn't write it that way, you know, to say, hey, I'm great. He wrote it because he would write memories. He wanted to put down in writing before he was gone, you know, the things that he remembered and enjoyed about being a Coca-Cola bottler. But when I read it, what I saw was a real warmth of a person who loved what he was doing, who loved his employees, and he loves his community. I thought, what a tribute. What a you know you don't you don't find that in big corporations no no so that's part of that what we were talking about before they're involved in the community because they love their community that's great I have a question um, do you know where the big factories that the, that are producing coke are located now do do I know what the large factories that that, that produce coke now the yeah. bottling factories do you know where they're located. Oh yeah, the 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 largest one, independent. Now we're not talking about Georgia, okay? Right. Georgia, that's corporate, okay? The largest independent bottler is in Charlotte, South Carolina, okay? Um, they are it's Coca Cola bottling. That's a Coca Cola Consolidated Bottling Company. Everybody calls it Coca-Cola Consolidated. When I was telling you the story about the uh, resort and mm -hmm. the Coca-Cola, he was one of the ones that started that company. It started out, he had a little bottling plant. Two other people had bottling plants. And they merged their operations together. And from there, it grew and it grew and it grew. Coca-Cola Consolidated is the largest in the country. Uh, the next largest is in Birmingham, and that is Coca-Cola United. Now, the history to Coca-Cola United, they're the ones, we talked about Chattanooga, and that when the guys went back to Chattanooga, they did set up their own little bottling plant. Well, that bottling plant evolved to the point that it became Part, it became the inspiration for Coca-Cola United in Birmingham. That, that was their first plant, so to speak. It was there before there was Coca-Cola United. Coca-Cola Birmingham, and then it emerged, they bought the one in Chattanooga, and now they're, they're in like 
seven or eight states, and they are the second largest. You know, um, these these two companies are Coca Cola bottlers that have true roots. You know, they go back to day one with Coca Cola, whether it's consolidated or whether it's United in Birmingham. They go back to the very first. Now, there's some big ones. There's a there's a, a company in Chicago, the one that bought Tullahoma, Tennessee. They're huge. They, they have plants all over, but they also have a lot of other things. For example, they're the guys, if you ever see a, a semi, I think it's called Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N or whatever, it's backed up to a, a, a McDonald's, okay? They're the ones that deliver the stuff to McDonald's. Uh, they own a large uh, food distribution company. Uh, it's, it's the institutional food distribution, you know, the restaurants and that. They own several um, beer distributorships. They're huge, you know, and they don't have the Coca-Cola roots. They're just a big company that's getting bigger. They don't have that kind of history. They've bought Coca-Cola plants that have that history, but they don't have it. So that's why when they say, who are the guys, who are the big guys that have been with it forever? It's Coca-Cola United. It's Coca-Cola Consolidated. Those are the guys that I have all the respect for. There are other big ones. family, you know. Um, there's one in, in Iowa, in Atlantic, Iowa. Again, it was a family op. They started out actually in the ice business, and then they got in the ice cream business. This is Atlantic, Iowa, and they they bought an ice cream company, and when they a second one as they were growing, and when they bought the company in the safe, there was a contract that this company had with Coca Cola to be a Coca Cola distributor. But they'd never activated the contract. What so happened by then, this company was bottling, you know, the old sodas, the lemon, lime, orange stuff. So I thought, well, let's try it. So they tried it. They are now huge. They, they, they cover almost the entire state of Iowa. They, they are into Illinois and, and the Dakotas. And, and the neat thing about that company, again, it's family, still owned by the same family. They do their own bottling, and they do their own canning. Now, the canning of Coca-Cola, that, that, that's something that presented a challenge to the bottlers. You know, it was back, back in, I guess, the 60s that Coca-Cola said to the bottlers, y'all better get ready for canning because we are in a throwaway society. And people want to throw no more of this deposit stuff. Mm -hmm. They want cans. Well, here's a here's a bottler in you know wherever Keokuk, and he's got a little plant. He's a how am I going to can? You know that's expensive to get into canning. A lot of the bottlers got together and formed canning cooperatives, where one plant would can the coke for several. Of the bottlers, mm -hmm. so it evolved. Well, then, what about the glass guys? You know, you had returnable bottles. 
those those things were well built. You know, they were meant to be used a time and time and time again, but they were expensive. People were throwing bottles away. The bottlers, the bottle makers, had to come up with a less expensive bottle. Well, you make it less expensive because you don't make it as sturdy. You know, it's and they came away came up with the throwaway bottle to be competitive with what the consumer wanted. We don't want to haul this thing back to the store. We're going to throw it in the trash when we're done with it. You, you know, you answer the call of the consumer, and uh, that's how all that happened. Wow. You know, every time you're on, the time goes so fast. You are so fun to talk to. Well, I appreciate that, Charlie. I, you know, I get into this thing, and, you know, for a guy who does not own stock in Coca-Cola, his yeah. total Coca-Cola investment is in the refrigerator right now, you know, <laughs> and, and doesn't work for Coca-Cola. I don't get a check with that logo on it. You know, I have totally enjoyed talking about Coca-Cola. You, you'd think I was, you know, I had a, a bottling plant somewhere. I just, I, I have met some people who have got me addicted to this this thing because they are good people. In my first book, the foreword is written by a bottler in San Antonio, Texas, and he is the great great grandson of the man in Vicksburg, Mississippi, that first bottled Coca Cola. Wow! And those are the kind of and, and you talk about a person who knows the history of Coca Cola. This gentleman, his name is Randy Mayo in San Antonio, Texas. He can tell you Coca-Cola. He knows it, and he, he's got great stories, and I've counted on him, too. Fantastic. Larry, thank you so much. And I would love, again, I have no problem with having you back on if you want to come back on to talk hope. I'll be glad to come back on, and I, I'm sure I'll have many, because I get stories every day. You yeah. know, a, a, a quick one coming up, the Indianapolis 500. There are so many Coca-Cola stories related to the 500 that we could talk just an hour about that. See? You know? So let's so, get you back on, buddy. I want to get you back on, okay? I'll be ready, Charlotte. I like talking to you. It's a lot of fun. Okay. I'd like to know the name of your books, where people can get them, please. The, it's the Coca-Cola Trail, and it's Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. The best place to get it is right from my website because then I can autograph it and send it to you. You just go to the coca-cola-trail.com. Now, you're going to walk into maybe one of those stores along 66, a country store. You're liable to walk into a museum. You're liable to see the book sitting there. Well, buy one if you want, but I can't autograph it there, okay? I get, a lot of them there do have my signature, but I'll autograph it right to Charlotte, okay? Straight from the map. That sounds good to me. Okay, Larry, after we get off here, I'll shoot you an email. We're going to get you back on, I promise. Well, I really good. want to talk with you, okay? All right, Charlotte. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Wow. Every time we talk to Larry, it is so fun to talk with him because he just knows so much about Coca-Cola and other stuff. So I'm definitely going to have him come back on because he's turning not only your favorite, he's one of my favorites to have on as well. Anyway, thank you guys for coming tonight. 
I appreciate it. It's been a weird week for me. We've had computer issues and health issues and all kinds of stuff going on, but at least we got the schedule finally straightened out. Um, <laughs> I kind of got, and then Larry was a victim of this. I kind of got the uh, dates messed up when I was setting stuff up. So all the guests are kind of flipped this week. So we'll have everything back on track next week, I promise. But thank you very much. And uh, next week, uh, come Monday, um, we're going to have a gentleman on who's, I believe his, his, his mother died. And he, I don't know if he just studied stuff or he just noticed different things after it happened. But after that happened, he noticed that, or he, he, theorized, he theorizes that people, once they pass away, stay alive for another 30 to 40 minutes. That they're not alive, but, but, but they're aware of what's going on around them for another 30 or 40 minutes after they pass. So he's going to come on Monday and talk to us about that. But in the meantime, have a good weekend. I'll see you Monday. And we're going to get Larry back on, on this show, I promise. Have a good one, you guys.